We're back for hour number two of the Charlie Robinson Show. If you want to connect with me, the website is theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. You can find me on Twitter at Macroaggression or on Instagram at Macroaggressions Podcast. I write books. There's information about all of those over there on the website. Check it out. See what you think. Uh, for those of you interested in an event in New York City, Saturday, September 9th, 2023, Free World NYC is an event being put on by Billy Ray Valentine, my good friend, the first uh, guest that I had on TNT Radio. He's hosting a, a 9-11 conference. I'll be speaking there. Gardner Goldsmith will be there. John Brisson, Tony Arterburn, Wayne McCroy, the great Don Jeffries, and Richard Gage as well. So if you're interested, go to eventbrite.com. Just type in the words Free World NYC, and you can find a ton of information about that. Get tickets. I think they're like $70. If you're going to be in New York City the weekend of 9-11-2023, come check us out. We're going to be doing that all day long in Midtown. Also, hey, did you hear that TNT Radio was nominated for an American Liberty Award? It's true. They absolutely were. You can go to AmericanLibertyAwards.com and take a look at the voting. They were nominated for Most Trusted Broadcast Media. I mean, yeah, <laughs> duh. <laughs> we know that. Um, it's going to be tough, though. I don't know if they're going to be able to beat MSNBC in this one. It'll be, it'll be close. But also, hey, listen, I was nominated for my work on macroaggressions and also for books. So you can check out me, uh, Best Analysis Broadcast, Best Infobomb Creator. I still don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. And also Most Truth Revealing Book. If you're going to be in the Austin, Texas area, August 12th, Saturday, you can get tickets at the AmericanLibertyAwards.com website and come join me and see what you think well uh chris graves is uh on his way hopefully so we will uh, uh we're gonna we're gonna chit chat until chris is able to get himself connected here but boy i'll tell you what um i feel like the masks are coming off in uh, these days both both figuratively and quite literally with regard to the Patriot Front situation, did you see that a couple of weeks ago? That was wild. The guys go to, to protest and and dress up like uh, Patriot Front, which is, I, I think it's the Fed's new boy band. It's really lame. It's pretty embarrassing, frankly, if, if I'm being honest. I mean, the level, the quality of, uh, of the operation is, uh, is not... Uh, it's not great. But um, look, you got to give them points for trying. I mean, yes, they're using... It's a very low quality psychological operation, and and you know you'd think that the federal government could afford to spend a little bit more money and not move their troops around in the back of U-hauls. Um, but to, but I ask you this: this was a, a funny thing. You did you guys see? You remember the 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 Patriot Front people getting like detained by the police in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, when they were showing up for this big thing? I don't know about you, but I've never seen a group of quote domestic terrorists get detained by the police and every single one of them magically allowed to keep their masks on. Isn't that weird? Because that's totally normal when you're arresting a bunch of domestic terrorism, terrorisms out there. Oh Lord. I'll tell you, it's just, it's kind of par for the course though. If we're being honest with what the Biden administration brings to things, because uh, they are, they're a low quality psychological operation themselves. You know, that there's, there is currently 
and this is a good thing, but it's also um, sort of a, a weird thing. But there is currently, in, in case you've noticed, a supply and demand imbalance with regard to white supremacy. I've noticed this. There seems to be, uh, well, more demand for white supremacy than there is supply. And in order to bridge this Adam Smith invisible hand dilemma that they've had, they have decided to create more supply of white supremacy where there isn't any. And so what they've decided is that they're going to get some some recruits out of Guantico and say, you, you're, you're fresh out of the FBI Academy wearing your 30. You, would you like to be a, a member of a fake domestic terrorist white supremacy group yes i know that you're supposed to be representative of the average american and every single one of you in this in, that's marching in this ridiculous uh, performance has 32 inch waists and the rest of america is fitting into triple xl shorts but sure you're gonna fit in you're gonna look uh totally normal no problems at all uh, you're going to look exactly like you're supposed to glowing like crazy oh my goodness well all right well let's bring in my man chris graves i'll tell you what in the world of the alternative media in the world of conspiracy research if you want to call it that the digging into the truths getting behind the 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 lies of what the media is telling us i tell you for my money there's nobody better than chris graves he's the host of digging chris graves we're going to talk false flags without further ado my friend chris graves oh chris how are you hey mr robinson <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> there's no mr robinson over here man let's just let's go I love talking with you, Charlie, and uh, I, I'm honored that you would have me on. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on, because if I want to talk false flags, you're my guy for that. And and I always want to talk false flags, you know, because I think so much of what we see out here in in the media, you know, which is, you know, for a lot of people, it is their lens to the world. They turn on the television and the television tells them what's happening in the world. And I have watched as as people have have conflated the two. They have mistaken that their television is reality, that 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 the things that they see on their television have to be real simply because it was presented to them through their television. And when we dig into these events, when we get into some of the you know the 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 terrorist so-called terrorist events that that are presented to us on our nightly news and we're told to be afraid of certain people and we're told told that the world is a very very dangerous place and that you could run into random violence just about any day of the week you know upon further examination these stories tend to be just that stories not not really backed by truth and evidence and you have made a career of getting to the bottom of what's real and what's not. And so I want to talk a little bit about this uh, over the next hour because I think if people can understand, I, f I think, first of all, you've got to know the concept of a false flag and what it is and what it isn't. And, um, and then it, once you understand sort of what it is and why it's being used, then it seems that we're at a better position to figure out what's actually happening. So 
how would we, if you're talking to somebody that's just coming across this concept of false flag terrorism, how do you, how would you go about describing it to them in a way that would sort of explain it without being too conspiratorial and freaking them out right off the bat? Well, I would say, uh, you usually with the news footage is what I start with. If, uh, if you start getting conflicting stories, which is going to be, you know, it, it is a natural thing that you're going to have, you know, different various reports um, from different witnesses, potentially, or, you know, the, the it's when the talking heads on uh, all these media platforms, when they, they kind of get in line with each other uh, to form like a narrative, like on uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, Osama bin Laden's name was being broadcast across the airwaves within maybe 10 to 15 minutes after this name was being broadcast across the airwaves within maybe 10 to 15 minutes after the second plane hit uh, the second tower. And there was really no, if they truly, uh, if it truly was a surprise, why would they, why would he be the prime, like the, you know, the number one suspect right off the bat? And then you got like uh, people from the CIA and then you got a lot of anonymous uh, high ranking law, law enforcement authorities that don't want to disclose their names, leaking information and things like that. When you, when you see like a narrative being formed in real time, that's usually uh, a red flag for me. And um, usually when you get the conflicting reports, too, like um, like, for example, with a lot of the school shootings, it's usually two to three suspects at first, like two, two to three shooters. I've noticed with a lot of these shootings and then it, it gets whittled down to the one lone nut by the by the end of the day. And it's like, well, what happened to, you know, what happened to these other suspects that witnesses saw, you know, shooting firearms and killing people? You know, that happened at uh, Columbine in 1999 and it happened at Sandy Hook. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness with Sandy Hook, but that that for me is like a, a next generation kind of false flag, especially with the media component um, to kind of make you kind of put you in a box of like questioning whether the thing was real to begin with which we really didn't have in the decades prior to that, like not too much. Um, but for the lay person, um, I'd say just like the, just the oddities of the story, like what, you know, I'm all over the place here, but like with JFK Jr., it came out that, uh, you know, there was witnesses to an explosion in the sky off of Martha's Vineyard. And then you never heard anything about those witnesses ever again. And it became that John Jr. was just, some reckless daredevil that got himself killed along with his wife and his sister-in-law. You know, it's like, well, what happened to these witnesses? And you never hear from them ever again. You know, and there was also yeah. reports that John Jr. contacted the uh, air traffic control tower and was awaiting uh, landing instructions by a Coast Guard uh, representative named uh, Todd Bergen. You never heard from him ever again either, or that report. It all becomes... John Jr. is just a, a reckless jerk, you know? 
Yeah, there's it's it's interesting. There's two you you've got to be with regard to these events when they happen. It pays to pay attention in the first 24 hours it seems like to me because two things are happening simultaneously. The first is that you're getting good information. It's the only time during it you'll get any sort of decent information. You'll get the the conflicting, you know, what turns out to later be conflicting stories. You're, it, it, you'll get the information about multiple shooters. You'll get information about, I saw an explosion on that plane. You know, I said, you know, I, I whatever it is, um, explosions there's always powers. Explosions yeah. in the tower. Ex- exactly. All of this, you, you, you get some good information early on, but then there's a simultaneous component to this, which is, as you mentioned, it's the crafting of the narrative early on too. So within, like you mentioned with for 9-11, within 15 minutes, you have L. Paul Bremer going on MSNBC talking about it. You have Ehud Barak in the UK. He's talking about it and they both come up with, well, listen, there's only three or four suspects in the world that could have pulled off anything quite like this. The level of sophistication, of course, we have to consider Osama bin Laden. Really? We have to consider Osama? Yeah. You've, you've cracked the case in 15 minutes? I mean, hey, Chris, I don't know about you, but in my mind, take as much time as you need to solve the case. This isn't a race. I'm not timing you. Take, if, I don't need the answer in 15 minutes. Take 15 months but let's get the correct answer. But we never do, do we, right? They, they're, they're so fast to start manufacturing this narrative that they don't even, you know, that they, 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 it's almost like as if, and I've described it like this in, in, in my book, they're just as a way for people to kind of wrap your head around this. Like if you're, if you're in the Olympics and you're a downhill skier the very first person, you, you know, in your ear, there's a group of 20 of you and you're the first person to go. You go down that the first score, the first time, you know, that person that goes down, they're in first place. Every other the other 19 skiers that come after that person, their job is to knock that person off of first place. So with the media in these false flag events that happen, these major narrative changing events that happen in our uh, history, the media is in a rush to create the first story. And that story is presented to the general public immediately. And then everybody else from that point forward is saddled with the responsibility of knocking that official narrative out of first place. But the thing that is interesting about it is that it never really happens. The general public tends to believe whatever the first story is that they're told about the event, regardless of how insane, nonsensical, uh, uh, and deranged it is. Like as an example, you know, if I were to tell you, Chris, if I were to be if put on my tinfoil hat and tell you Chris. that nineteen Arab hijackers with bo- armed with box cutters uh, took control of four airplanes and flew them wildly off course for an hour and then slammed them into two buildings in New York City, one in the Pentagon and one in Shanksville, all even though they didn't have flying experience. I mean. You would tell me that that story was a conspiracy theory, and you would be right in telling me that that story is a conspiracy theory because the official story of 9-11 is 100% nonsense. And anybody with an open mind and a the ability for critical thinking can see that in five seconds. And yet it is to this day, two decades later, still considered to be the 
only and most logical explanation for the destruction of the Twin Towers in the United States, in New York City on that day. Nobody wants to question it. Nobody, you know, nobody, the, the normies out there have decided that that is the official story. But I'll tell you what, man, there's a ton of holes in that. There's a ton of holes in all of these stories. And if you want to get to the truth about it, well, Chris Graves is going to be your guy to do it. We're going to have more with Chris on the other side of this break. This is TNT Radio. Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Don Kerry gave testimony at uh, the House hearing about his climate envoy ship, if you will, for Joe Biden. John Kerry was technically telling the truth. He did not own a private jet. His family does not own a private jet. But are you ready for this? His wife owned a private jet until 2022. He never owned one. He hasn't flown on one in a while. Who knows what a while is. He says he flies commercial. Okay, well, you could fly 100 private jet trips a year and still say, I fly commercial, if you fly commercial as well. It was just unbelievable parsing. He ignored all the documented evidence going back since Biden was elected, uh, the video evidence, the documents through government records that we were able to obtain. This is how I did the article for the New York Post showing that John Kerry's private jet use for one year exceeds any potential Woodburn pizza oven emissions for almost a thousand years and that's assuming the oven is running 24 7 which no oven would be the mark morano show on today's news talk radio tnt a better business tip from tnt radio one reason people tune in to tnt radio is often because they're loyal to a specific show or personality our personalities have been a part of people's daily routine and people continue to tune in They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you can't believe what you're hearing, get the straight talk from Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. We're back with Chris Graves. You can check out his show, Digging Chris Graves, wherever podcasts are served. Uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, JFK Jr., his plane. I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, I want to mention that there are intellectual ghettos that you can find yourself in, in which you are contemplating the resurrection of JFK Jr. in these sort of weird areas of the internet. So there are always traps set for people. It's not to say that, you know, we conspiracy theorists here, we, we're pretty good at sorting through what's, tr- what's fact and what's fiction. But I don't, I don't know that everybody has that level of uh, discernment. And so you wind up in situations where people were talking about JFK Jr. coming back and presenting himself in front of the Capitol and and, and all of these crazy things. Look, I, I don't believe that that is happening, but I'll tell you what, it does make for a good story. Uh, about how all of this could could you know could go go wrong, and people are talking about well you know listen Q is coming and they're all coming to save us and all that stuff, yeah that that's that's a great way to keep a lot of people busy looking you know chasing their tails and looking for things that don't exist, when in actuality, 
You don't even need to get into conspiracy theory. We can get into conspiracy analysis because we're not theorizing about potential conspiracies, Chris. You've been really good about analyzing actual ones. What happened with JFK Jr.'s airplane? I remember this. I remember at the time this happened, I was working. I was I was out of college, a couple years out of college. And uh, I remember watching this and thinking, there goes another Kennedy accident, you know, another accidental thing, right? This is pre 9-11. I wasn't really awake to what was going on yet. It seemed feasible. I, you know, planes go down. It could be on, you know, weather happens. Uh, Kennedy's accidents with Kennedy's happen weekly. And, uh, you know, it all sort of sounded plausible and i didn't have any sort of the kennedy curse yes 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 the kennedy curse but even i heard even i heard uh questions about uh whether or not there had actually been some sort of explosive device in there what do you make of what happened with the plane crash that killed john f kennedy jr back in and his wife uh back in 1999 yeah, the uh, anniversary was a couple of days ago. Um, yeah, the plane disappeared. Uh, it, it was July 16th, 1999. Um, I think, yeah, I think it was it, it was taken out. Um, the late William uh, Bill Cooper actually was able to get the footage from WCVB at Channel 5, the Boston affiliate, that 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 Coast Guard spokesperson I was just mentioning before, uh, Todd Bergen, he was talking to uh, the on-air personality, Susan Warnick, about a, a last radio call that JFK Jr. had with the air traffic control tower at Martha's Vineyard Airport, saying that he was awaiting uh, landing instructions. And then short, like within seconds of that last radio transmission, it was uh, his 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 airplane plummeted into the Atlantic Ocean, and there were three witnesses in particular: a guy named Victor Probanek, and he was written about. He was a Pennsylvania lawyer that was fishing, and um, he had heard an explosion. Now he was a lawyer, so uh, to be honest with you, I think he probably most likely saw the explosion too. I mean, I wasn't there, but. I think to cover his own behind, I think he he uh, he smartly, if that's the right term, I think he wisely, rather, um, said he just heard it. But there were two other um, witnesses that we've never heard from ever again. There was uh, a newspaper reporter for the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, and he was described by a reporter by the name of Steve Sprasia from Channel 5, the same channel that uh, talked with uh, Todd Bergen. And Steve Sprasia said he he interviewed a, a sandy-haired, kind of like a middle-aged gentleman that worked for the Martha's Vineyard Gazette that said he was walking along Philbin Beach, which is right at the point where his, uh, JFK Jr.'s plane went down off of Martha's Vineyard. Actually, ironically, not too far from the Redgate farm that his mother, Jackie, had left to him and his sister, Caroline, um, when she passed away in 1994. The wreckage was found not too far from there. And 
this Martha's Vineyard Gazette reporter said he noticed uh, an explosion in the sky. And unfortunately, Steve Sprazier never got that, that reporter's name. And the Martha's Vineyard Gazette ever since has, um, has claimed that they never had such a reporter. And the, the last uh, witness that my friend Donald Jeffries and I have been trying to find as well for a long time was actually outed by name by Shepard Smith on Fox News the next day on that Saturday, uh, July 17th, as being a friend of Shepard's uh, producer at uh, Fox News and was actually a guest at Rory Kennedy's wedding. And that was the wedding that John Jr. was was flying to that weekend. So I can't get the footage from uh, Fox News of Shepard Smith's reporting of this person's name. I don't think anyone can anymore, but that would be the other witness that claimed they saw a, a big explosion in the sky. That's interesting, but there's more to this story because, as we know, it's it's a. Uh, I don't know if that answered. Ken- I don't know if that an- it, that answered you, Charlie. I'm kind of all over the well, place with it. Well, it it it. Well, the, I think the the component to it that I that catches a lot of people off guard is the is his desire to run for Senate, right? In new in and who he would have been running against in a Senate race in New York about that time has a very familiar last name. Does it not? Yeah, there's actually two camps there. There's the, uh, the Hillary Clinton camp and the George W. Bush camp. Um, I don't personally, I don't like to speculate cause I don't know. And to be honest with you, I think the Clinton and the Bushes are so tied together. It's really hard to kind of make a distinction. But that yeah. is the two theories yeah. that John Jr. was going to run for uh, the New York Senate. And that's what Hillary eventually, you know, she carpet bagged because she wasn't from New York. She ended up uh, winning that. And George W. Bush disappeared that weekend uh, during uh, his presidential campaign against Al Gore at the time. And George W. Bush's uh, campaign manager made the claim to the press that she didn't know where George was that weekend. So there's these two these these two camps that I like to think it's either the Bushes or the Clintons. And to me, I feel like there's really no there's really no distinction between the two. They're they're both the same crime syndicate, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you look at back in the 80s and the mean Arkansas days of uh, exactly of, yep. of the running of cocaine into into Arkansas and Bill Clinton overseeing that operation uh, at the behest of George H.W. Bush. There's no there's no I'm not, I know the general public was led to believe that there was a presidential race in 1992 between George H.W. Bush and, <laughs> yeah. and Bill Clinton and that Bill Clinton, right. quote, won the election. But I'll tell you what, there was no losing for George H.W. Bush. In fact, a case could be made that it could it provided him the opportunity to slither back into the shadows and go to work for the Carlisle Group and plot 9-11. So um, exactly. I wonder, though. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder. I think the this. only you know, loser we, in that was was Ross Perot. I think he was yeah. the only loser in that whole race. They edged yeah, him out. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, it's funny. That's the first person I've only voted for two people in my life, Ross Perot and Ron Paul. And and I voted yeah. for Ross Perot in '92, and everyone said he's. They said he sounds crazy. I said I kind of like that. I think I started down <laughs> that uh, down that uh, you know alternative ways of thinking, probably with my Ross Perot endorsement. But but listen, you mentioned also something earlier on and uh, about Bill Cooper, and yeah. and the work of Bill Cooper is outstanding. And for those of us that that came into this line of work, if you want to call it that, post Bill Cooper. We owe a lot of what we know and how we understand things to the work of Bill Cooper. He he talked about Project Orion. And this yeah. was a, a a a concept in which, well, more than a concept, it was a plan to enrage and inflame the anti-gun lobby by committing school shootings, right? So this idea when, you know, he writes Behold the Pale Horse and, and talks about Project Orion and you go, well, this is crazy, man. What are you talking about? School shootings? He says, well, they'll have school shootings in order to use that as the justification to ram through gun control legislation. And you go, okay, well, I guess. I mean, if you say so, Bill, you know, and, and you kind of put that in the back of your mind and then you get And Colin then over Biden. the course of the next yeah. decade, it's exactly what he had said. Exactly what he said. Can we talk a little bit about this? Bill Cooper had an understanding. He knew what was going on. He saw things before they happened because he knew the mentality of these people. Project Orion, not so theoretical, huh? It looks like they put that thing into, into reality at some point. Yeah. Well, it was like the American version of uh, the Gla Operation Gladio yeah, over yeah. in Italy. It was some people even refer to Columbine and events like 9-11 as being uh, Gladio B, even I've seen it referred to. So I don't think the Operation Gladio ever really ended, you know, after the, the 1960s. And that was, uh, I think, to this day, we're still we're still seeing shades of that, you know, if not flat out, you know, the actual operation itself, just not, you know, in Italy by itself you know right and i think bill was uh i don't think bill had a crystal ball i think he was just looking at the trends and what was in the news and analyzing it and things like 9-11 he actually uh I, dare i say kind of predicted 9-11 and a lot it's of people like go three oh, months alex in jones. advance yeah people like to say oh alex jones predicted it but no uh, bill cooper predicted it a month before alex jones's famous video you know Named him by name, said they're going to they're going to use Osama bin Laden. They're going to say that he did it. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? He, Bill Cooper. Yeah, he admonished us. Don't you dare believe it? He yelled at it. Bill Cooper hated his audience, man. He yelled at his audience all the time. It was really funny. <laughs> well, yeah, they would call up and they wouldn't give a source. And he goes, uh, we don't speculate, you know, and uh, whether you like Alex Jones or not, Alex would just let people just say whatever they wanted over the airwaves without backing it up with a source. And Bill was like, no, we're not going to play that game. You like, and he would even say, don't take my word for it. Go do the research yourself. And he was right. You know, he's like, don't take my word for it. Go. I told you where I got the source. Now go investigate it for yourself, you know, and most of the lemmings, they don't do that. You know, and he used to say that the sheeple, you know, he would talk about the sheeple. I, I can see why he would get frustrated because people, they, they would speculate right on the air and all on his nine 11 broadcast, which I believe, um, when he went on the air on 9-11, I think that's what actually bought him uh, another month or two of his life 
because uh, Doyle Shamley was was Bill Cooper's like best friend at the time. And Doyle Shamley, uh, it came out in the years after the fact and said that he had documents and he had evidence to show that Bill was supposed to be arrested on Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And there were, there was like a really weird component. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard this, Charlie, but there were all over the, the state of Arizona where, where, uh, Bill lived on nine 11, there were a whole bunch of weird mysterious deaths of people by the name of bill or william cooper and it reminded no, me of never the heard of this scene. yeah it reminded me of the scene in terminator where uh, he doesn't know yeah, who uh <laughs> the sarah connor that he's supposed to kill so he opens a phone book and just starts killing random like sarah connor's down the list and the guy's like we got a, we got a damn phone book killer here you know and yeah. it reminded me of that i'm like what are the odds you know, and if he really was supposed to be arrested and taken out on 9-11 and he goes on the air for eight hours and covers, you know, 9-11, this thing that he basically predicted three months prior. I mean, did that really extend his life, you know, by two months, basically? And uh, it's fascinating. Amazing. But uh, Doyle does. He, Doyle Shamley told Jack Blood that on uh, Jack Blood show in like 2011, I believe in. I, I played that the audio from that on one of my shows with uh, Tom Cooper recently, and a lot of people were like, "Oh, we didn't know this." You know, a lot of people don't. And they basically <laughs> straight up killed Bill Cooper. Yeah, know, yeah. He, well, he didn't make it much longer. I mean, they, he was dead in three months at, right after nine eleven. They they well, got they, him they, on his. Well, yeah, it was November fifth, I believe. November fifth or sixth, I think it was the fifth. Oh wow! And they basically they shot him on his own property. They. They made sure that he didn't get back into his house, you know, because they didn't want another Waco or Ruby Ridge type situation. And they yeah. even pressured well, uh, Bill's da daughter to give them the schematics of his house and everything. Wow. You know, I had this conversation um, in 2019 at, at Narcopulco late night in, at the bar in, at the hotel. Maybe it <laughs> might have been a couple, couple cocktails, but with Ole Damagar talking about the Operation Gladio components happening that were happening in Europe and how that, you know, you mentioned it as well, that how this might be Gladio 2.0, how that concept never strategy really went away. Tension. The strategy, yeah, strategy of tension. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. That is, you, I mean, when, look, you got to be a real piece of garbage to come up with a concept of the strategy of tension where you just inflame people and you keep, keep people on edge. But, but we were talking in specifically, they mentioned during the, the gladio days of like the, the seventies, uh, the, the, the late sixties, early, you know, all through the seventies and maybe early part yeah. of eighties that how they would go in, you know, shoot up a, a supermarket. You know, because just because it's a random place, it's a place where the general public is. And if you shoot up a supermarket, then you put it in the heads of, of people that it is possible that you could walk into a supermarket today and never come out, you know, and, and your life ends there and to have that source of fear. And, you know, no sooner did did Ole and I have this conversation. Well, maybe a couple of years later, I guess we have the Buffalo supermarket shooter and i go this yeah. is gladio i mean they're not even using a different playbook they're running the same are they just running the same plays over and over again chris like they're just running like some sort of weird 
NATO style West Coast offense where they just they have the same plays. It doesn't matter who the players are, as long as you've got the schematics right, you can insert anyone into this. It feels very orchestrated to me. Do you get the same feeling about this? That this is just a Gladio part two? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? <laughs> That's basically <laughs> it. That's what they most think. of the public, most of the public, they uh, won't buy into kooky conspiracy theories you know so they have that cover too you know and all that is is just you're just questioning an official narrative like like i don't want to give you a history lesson but just remember the term conspiracy theorist was a cia term in a 1967 memo to uh shut up critics of the warren commission findings of a lone nut lee harvey oswald and that was it it was just to question the official narrative or to question authority makes you a, a, a kook, you know? It's just another name-calling tactic that unfortunately still works, only now they say truther or hoaxer or birther or whatever they have next, you know what I mean? Or yeah. you're an anti-vaxxer, you know? They, they come up with all these things to demonize people that are, for the most part, just looking to, for the truth, you know, seeking the yeah. truth and weaponized words yeah well we can't have that um we can't have people digging into the real truth because if they were to find out what the real truth is they would understand that this entire reality that we're being presented with is fake and being created and one of the things that uh i have questions about and i know that you have answers to and it's and it's relevant to me geographically because i live not too far from columbine high school. Yeah. And I would like to know what you know about that shooting, because that's kind of the one that started it all. And that was the one that really got, I'm not, it's not maybe the first school shooting, but it's the first school shooting that had a full media campaign behind it where everybody was talking about it. It was breaking. Maybe it's because the news cycle had gone 24 hours uh, at that point, but but we were in a situation where you were getting bombarded with Columbine and 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 these kids and trench coat mafia, and there was a very specific story about it. But I think that there's a little bit more to this story. What do you know about Columbine? Well, it definitely wasn't it definitely wasn't the first, but it was the one that was uh, zeroed in on in the media, like you just mentioned. It was basically, in my opinion, it was the nine eleven of the whole school shooter phenomenon um basically it was reported in the local press at the time and the article still exists out there uh that it, it was a most likely a terrorist incident that where there was hostages involved and there were up to eight between eight and ten um shooters at the school and that actually would make a lot more sense in terms of why the local authorities and I don't mean the feds because the feds were on scene very, very fast. Um, and there's even, uh, I'll even go down the rabbit hole a little bit more. I mean, there's been claims over the years. And I swear, Charlie, that I saw in the mid 2000s, I saw photographs, still photos from this footage of a NATO truck parked out in front of Columbine High School. And why a, NATO why a NATO truck of all while organizations would be on U.S. soil during a high school shooting, especially one that would become like the 
you know, the, the be all end all when it comes to, you know, school shootings and everything before Sandy Hook, of course, you know, um, I don't know, but people, there's a lot of people like if you go back on, you know, back in time and you're able to go through the old message boards and things like that. And old conspiracy websites that haven't been completely memory hold. There's all kinds of references to a NATO presence um, at the school and military tanks. And I even know a person that was there that was uh, she escaped. She saw tanks. Why would tanks be at a school shooting like in the aftermath and in the days afterwards, like blocking uh, streets and things? Uh, it's things like that. It's just really weird. And to be honest, there is a lot of people if you go back and you look at all the police reports and the witness statements, for the most part, you're going to get a, a different picture, a different uh, perspective of the official narrative that Jefferson County put out after the fact. In, in fact, they actually, I believe, had to hire a, a publicity firm to to write their final report, which, I mean, the only other time I've heard something like that happening is like with COVID. You know, a vaccine needing a, a publicity department. But uh, yeah. but, but besides that, there were a lot of witnesses that saw many different shooters there that day. And apparently, if you look at, you know, when you do look at the 11,000 page pages that are there, the 11K that they're referred to as for, by researchers, you, you can see that there was uh, people on the roof that were shooting. There was even a videotape at one point that doesn't exist anymore of the uh, of the sh the main shooter shooting down into the parking lot. There was uh, gunmen at every exit, kind of keeping the cops at bay until, uh, in my opinion, until the, the main mission was uh, complete. That, that main mission would be most of the murders. And there were bodies moved around because I know someone, like I said, that saw adult shooters uh one was with dylan klebold and he would she described him as being almost military like in um in appearance and he seemed to be some kind of a handler type person trying to calm klebold down and and this wasn't eric harris um because she her name's jennifer small she's one of the only uh well not only but she's a very very brave survivor a witness that didn't let the local authorities bully her into changing her what she saw in, in fact they That's actually crazy. said that she she's one of the most accurate people almost down to the minute of what she saw except for the fact that this military 30 something year old guy wasn't eric harris like they they didn't accept that and they ended up tapping her, her telephone after the fact and just, uh, you know, just giving her a hard time. And you see it right there in her witness statement that she go, she's like, no, I saw what I saw. And her mother was present with her. And <laughs> even the guy that's writing the witness statement that is a part of like trying to get her to change her story is basically saying in the report that Jennifer won't be swayed. And she's uh, yeah. her and her mother are questioning the integrity of uh, our department and everything. And uh, I interviewed uh, Jen uh, a couple of times and she's like you're damn right well, I wasn't gonna you know damn right I wasn't gonna change my story and you know I, I, I she stuck to it and she's Amazing. very brave 
Yeah. Well, there's there's always so much to know about these these shootings, and as you mentioned, um, you know, a NATO truck parked out front of that would make a lot of sense when you understand that the concept of Operation Gladio was put yeah. into place by none other than NATO. So when Ole Damagard talks about the traveling roadshow of NATO uh, pulling off these false flags internationally, I think this is part of what he's talking about. We've got a final segment with Chris Graves coming up after the break. This is TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Last month, the school board in Florida's Brevard County passed a new dress code that prohibits students from dressing like animals. People who do this are known as flurries. This was in response to students complaining about others dressing with things like dog collars and cat ears. And true to form, some are claiming the code violates the Title IX regulations proposed by Joe Biden. Max Eden is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he writes in the Washington Examiner asking the question, does Title IX protect furries? He points out that there are those who say gender identity under Title IX also includes a girl who decides that her gender identity is kitten. So what would it sound like if neo-pronouns are used? Well, if someone identifies as a kitten, you'd say, Kit brought the coat for Kit self. Yeah, I'm sure it's already happening, though, in schools all over the country. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg for TNT Radio. Suck it up. It's not a big deal. Snap out. Just get over it. We've all heard it. But if you're experiencing extreme stress, it's not just in your head. It can affect your entire body because toxic stress can hurt us physically without us even knowing it. If you've lost a job, worry about your next meal, or have trouble making it through the day, if you're feeling the effects of stress, we can help. Text STRESS to 211211 to find a solution. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Final segment of the show. We've got Chris Graves here. Chris, what is the best place for people to find your outstanding work and to support what you're doing? Well, uh, right now I'm uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, C Graves Mask Guy, and uh, I'm on all the uh, TNP, the New Prisoners uh, podcast on Rumble and Odyssey, and I do shows uh, like you had mentioned before, digging Chris Graves. Um, conspiring with Mr. Cooper, that's with Tom Cooper, and uh, don't take our word for it, which like I was uh, explaining about what Bill Cooper used to say, I don't take my word for it, go do the research yourself, that's kind of an homage to Mr. Cooper too, Um, and I do Get Mad with Chris Graves on uh, Ocelli.com, and that's Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays at uh, 6 p.m., and and, uh, I've been uh, ill recently, so I've been, uh, I'm hoping to pick that back up very soon. So that's basically where you can find me, and uh, I, you, I try to. You're gonna it. have, you're gonna have a bunch of people checking out your stuff. I mean, right now we've just sent people down the rabbit hole of Columbine. They're, you know, now that we've we've screwed up their entire weekend. Now they're going to be researching Columbine <laughs> truth. They're going to be trying to figure this. Like, eleven thousand documents. What? Now I have to read eleven thousand documents. Yes, of course you have to read them all, and we want a book report on Columbine by the end of next week, man. I'll tell you. But if it's not Columbine that throws you off, you know, what about Oklahoma City? You know, because I remember that. I remember I had my JFK moment. I remember where I was when when Oklahoma City went down. And, of course, you immediately feel, 
it disgusted when you see it's a visual representation of terror, no matter who was responsible for it. It, it was a, dis, you know, uh, a devious act. The component of the children that died during it, I think, added the emotional hook that was, uh, you know, that was needed when, you know, federal buildings, you know, um, yeah. not the most, you know, you don't love federal buildings all that much, you know. It's always but the children, when, Charlie, even right, up to like when they're. When they're filled with children, then that takes it to a different level. And I watched Oklahoma City, and I, I was, it was at a time in my life when I didn't know what I didn't know, and I didn't know what to pay attention to. But now, in yeah. retrospect, I look back on that thing, and that is a very big can of worms. What do we make of, I mean, and I know we've only got eight minutes, so I don't expect a full breakdown of uh, <laughs> Oklahoma City in eight minutes. But, you know, I mean, what can we what can we work on, and, and what should we be looking for with regard to uh, taking a secondary look at that event? Well, with that one, there was a lot of, you know, I mentioned with Columbine how there were other suspects seen all over the place. Well, you had your John Doe number two with uh, seen with Timothy McVeigh. You, there was actually, in, of all people, Mr. Bill Cooper, who had boots on the ground, by the way, right when it was happening. And uh, a, a woman by the name of Michelle Moore, Michelle Marie Moore, um, wrote a book called Oklahoma City Day One. And Bill actually, or Mr. Cooper, um, he actually published it and put it out there. So basically uh, what Michelle Marie Moore and, and Bill talked about was hearing the, the emergency responders like the, uh, the radio uh, reports and stuff of mercury switches being found on the unexploded uh, bombs that were found inside the Murrah building. And that's inside the motor building. We're not talking about a rider truck or a vehicle parked outside. We're talking about like two to three, possibly even four unexploded bombs that were taken out of the building and, and by the bomb squad. And there's actually footage locally from, the, from Oklahoma City. And it's actually on, on video. And I think um, a noble lie who uh, Chris Emery was the producer of that. I've had him on my show a couple of times now. And in that movie, A Noble Lie, which is basically like the loose change for the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, to just to kind of put it in perspective, very well done documentary. You can actually see the footage of the bomb truck, uh, bomb squad truck backing up to remove these unexploded uh, bombs that were found and actually halted rescue efforts and probably people died when they halted the rescue efforts when they would find a new unexploded bomb so that would be the biggest thing charlie i think that in it, it it reminds me of like kind of like a beta test for for a 9-11 six years later and around yeah. that time joe biden likes to um or he did when he was more uh you know alive for lack of a better term, he used to like to bo he used to like to boast how he was the author of the Patriot Act, but it was before o Oklahoma City happened. So this was, you know, taking our rights away in terms of something like the Patriot Act, you know, was brewing for years and years prior, and they tried to they tried to lump uh, Waco and Ruby Ridge and things like that as being the reason for the Oklahoma City bombing. But 
I think part of that, it was a drill that went very awry. And it was a beta test in many ways, because there were a lot of witnesses that saw things they weren't supposed to, that were intimidated after the fact by the authorities that were supposed to be in charge of protecting us and, you know, uncovering the truth. And that would be the FBI. They totally messed with the grand jury people like Hoppy uh, Heidel, I think it was Hoppy Heidelberg or Heidenberg. I think I'm mispronouncing that, but he uh, was one of the he was one of the mem uh, members of the grand jury that just demanded access to evidence of witnesses that they weren't granting the grand jury. So that that was one of the first trials that were really controlled because they even had, um, I don't know if you remember this too, Charlie, it was kind of the beginning of having victim impact statements on the stand where it's unfortunate that the victims had to go through the pain that they went through, but they, they weren't witnesses to the actual criminal act. So all it would really serve to do is to, is to, um, you know, to coerce the jury uh, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could speak more eloquently, but uh, emotionally charge the the, yes. the courtroom with 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 a with getting them to feel a certain way about feel you know, feel feelings fact. over facts. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And that was kind of the that was kind of the first instance of that. And then later on, it would go all the way up into things like the Boston bomber trial, you know, which is a lot of weirdness behind that one. But it, the Oklahoma City bombing trial was kind of the beginning of this victim impact statement thing where it would color the jury if if i if i'm saying it the right way but a lot of things yeah. stemmed from the oklahoma city bombing in terms of getting our rights taken away paving the way for things like 9-11 which let's also remember that the crew that was in charge of demolishing the remaining murrah building was hired to haul away the debris of the world trade center in 2001 as well really? controlled demolition I think mm. oh yeah so there's a lot of weirdness with oklahoma city <laughs> was uh was timothy mcveigh a sheep dip operative was he operating at, at the behest of the federal government or was he truly independent well considering that his his sister actually uh came out later on uh, Timothy McVeigh's sister said that she received letters from her brother saying that he was not out of the service and that he was actually going into special ops. I mean, that would be a big one, you know. And the fact that people saw multiple McVeigh's on the day itself and multiple rider trucks, by the way, and multiple John Doe number twos in various places in Oklahoma City uh, during the event and even afterwards. Like that reminds me of Mohammed Ada, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. I was they just going to say have, Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> they always have these doubles everywhere, you know. And I guess that's a a classic tactic, like with um, things like you know the spy game or espionage or false flag, you know type, uh, you know psychological operations, where they will have multiple people with the same identity. So I do not think he was uh, just what they said he was i don't think he was just i'm not saying that he i mean he very well could have been a white supremacist but i i think he was playing the part to a certain degree if somebody approaches you in a chat room and wants you to be a part of a drill that they have 
uh, exactly. politely decline that invitation. Big thanks to Chris Graves, our guest in hour number two. Eric Gajewski, hour number one. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around with me. I'll be back same time next weekend. This is TNT Radio. <laughs>